You are looking live. I don't believe what I just saw. It is possible. There are no flags on the field. It's a miracle. Live from one of the many home states of Lindsey Vaughn, it's the 252 uh, Sports Talk Radio is done by academics. I'm Chris Garrett, history professor at Bethel University, joined by... And hurtling down the hill, I'm Chris Moore. <laughs> and live from a hoth, I'm Sam Mulberry. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we could have used that any number of times. All right. So welcome back to the 252. This is our third episode. This will be our first episode where we're joined... Uh, where our fourth man joins our booth. Like I was trying to come up with a sports way of saying it. We've got an interview in segment two with Art. Full Rem- house backfield, maybe. There we go. Single wing. Uh, Art Remillard at St. Francis <laughs> University. Sorry, Art. <laughs> Join us to talk about uh, sports as a field of scholarship and especially religion in sports. But let's start by catching up with what's new in the world of sports. Uh, I thought we'd start with a little somber or sad news, mm-hmm. which is uh, the death of Frank Robinson. Who, I mean, if any listeners here know him from recent time, was maybe his manager of the Washington Nationals. Mm-hmm. Uh, of course, before that, in the 60s and 70s, a great player, uh, MVP in both leagues, I think mm-hmm. the first yeah. to do that. Yeah. And the first African American player to become a manager yep. um, in the 70s and 80s and then after. Um, and by all accounts, you know, a fiery competitor, but also a gentleman. And do, you, do you have a, a Frank Robinson memory or something that comes to mind when you think of Frank Robinson? Well, what's odd is the one that I was thinking of most recently was when he was the Nats ma- manager. And they had signed Matt Lecroy, who used to be a twin. He was a terrible catcher. He was a DH. He had bad knees. And I forget all the details, but there was a game where they had to use Lecroy as catcher. It was like a disaster. Like there were pass balls, they were mm-hmm. just running on it. And like he had to leave, and like it, it literally broke Frank Robinson's heart. He's this really hmm. tough, stern guy. Like when they signed Lecroy, basically told him, We're not going to play you much, son. <laughs> like you're a backup. And got stuck putting him in the position where he was embarrassed. And it just like, I mean, the, like Robinson, among other things, had a very strong sense of dignity, mm-hmm. right? And to inflict that on a player was uh, traumatic for him. So. Yeah, in interest. I mean, not related to like career highlights or the things he broke when, records. When for. did he? Uh, when did he start managing? I was trying to remember. I should have looked it up before I came. It's yeah. late seventies. Okay, because because yeah. my first memory of him is just as like just the Orioles manager, yeah. and yeah. like and not that that was oh he's like the first black manager, mm-hmm. but it's just like he's just the manager of the Orioles. Like that was that was just my. My sense of him. And then I learned about him as a player as I got older. Right. He managed in both leagues, correct? He did. I think uh, probably the Giants. and Reds? The, well, and the Nats. Reds yeah. and the Nats. Yeah. Yeah. And the Orioles Indians would have been. Yeah. 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 I mean, so a very long career kind of on both sides of the player-manager divide. And so rest in peace, Frank Robinson. Uh, second thing is a little bit stale news it's from the very beginning of February, but we didn't have time last week, so I bumped it to this week. It's beneath the radar of most even football fans, even college football fans. I was going to say, can it be stale news if no one has talked about it? So, no, we're breaking something new as far as you know. It's it's finally aged news. That's right. So uh, there's a school in, I think it's kind of around Canton, Ohio, called Malone University. Mm -hmm. Uh, Malone College then became university. Uh, So this is a Christian school. It's kind of a sister school of Bethel. It's part of the Council for Christian Colleges and Universities. Mm -hmm. Um, Distantly kind of evangelical Quaker roots. But anyway, it canceled its football program. Right. Now, for a little context here, um, my sense from looking at this a few years ago is only about half of CCCU schools actually have a football program. That so, low. For example, some of the bigger name schools that don't, uh, Calvin College, which has revisited this two or three mm-hmm. times and decided not to do it, 
Gordon College outside Boston, Messiah College in Pennsylvania, right. Westmont in Southern California, Seattle Pacific. Um, but the trend has been the other direction. So in the last like five to 10 years, uh, another former Quaker school, George Fox University added football. Southeastern, a Pentecostal school in Florida added football. Missouri mm-hmm. Baptist added football. And six years ago, Malone actually moved its program up from NAIA to Division II, so it has athletic scholarships. Right. And of course, it's in a pretty serious football state, I hear. So, so they say. So, it, I mean, so the cancellation is fairly significant. The president in the press release said it's the most difficult decision I've ever had to make. Hmm. Wow. And they emphasize, like, they'll fulfill their scholarship commitments to those athletes, but as of next year, there's no football at Malone. And this is a result of an overall university budget crunch, correct? Exactly. I think it reported as $2.5 million. Like, there's this structural deficit that anything beyond, like, a wild increase in enrollment couldn't remedy, and so... What the release claimed is that a million dollars will be saved by cutting football. And so we'll, I'm sure we'll come back to this and talk about the NCAA and mm-hmm. especially Division One, but other levels of athletics. But, you know, what struck me is at Bethel, I think football is increasingly prominent, especially under our current coach who's been here a long time, has really built a winning program, Steve Johnson. It, I mean, it's presented as a source of pride, you know, a source of community. And a source um, of recruitment. Source mm-hmm. of recruitment, na- like nationally. I mean, mm-hmm. far beyond just our kind of metro area, which is where, you know, 90-plus percent of Bethel students come from the five-state area. Um, and so like, it's almost unimaginable that football will be canceled here. And I don't know Malone well enough to know how this is being taken. But, right. you know, for an NCAA Division II school to just cancel football for whatever reason, financial, cultural, whatever, is news and something that may be bearisome watching on our part yeah. as the year goes on. Uh, Sam, let's uh, check in with how we did with our uh, three to see things. What w- were they worth the watch last weekend? Well, do you want to start with your the first story you have there or not? This this goes back to Chris's... Uh, yeah, we kind of hints at in the tease. So Lindsey Vaughn, Chris had suggested, was going to be probably racing her final race at the World Championships. I believe she got a bronze medal in the downtown. She did, that's correct. Mm-hmm. Kind of her event. Uh, so with that, uh, has she cemented her status as the greatest American skier? I think there was a 538 story even before that race, saying that by leaps and bounds, she's obviously the greatest American skier, and arguably, with a couple others, the greatest skier of all time, male or female. Does that seem like an appropriate measure of her greatness? I, I can't say I follow. I story. have to. Because I have to go to Chris Moore on this because he's he's my skiing guy. That's so. right, Chris Moore. It's so weird that I've become uh, the skiing guy, Tad. Where if you ever listen to this, I'm so sorry, <laughs> but I would just say that. Uh, there's a couple different ways we can measure greatness. We can measure greatness by the number of uh, national ch- uh, or international world championships and Olympic medals. Yeah. Uh, and by that regard, she's, she shapes up very nicely. Mm-hmm. But also I think we have to acknowledge tenure. Um, and she has raced s- at such a high level so successfully for so long. Okay. You combine those two things. And I think the case is made that she is uh, certainly within that, that top ten greatest gears of all time and probably higher than that top ten, probably high, probably in the top five. Well, I, maybe this is just a function of being American, but also raising the profile of the sport, I think, probably should have some weight here. You know, like if, well, that, we're gonna, if, well, we, if we're going to count that, then absolutely. Yeah. She turned it into a celebrity sport. Yeah, I mean, at least for a casual or non-fan. Yeah, I mean, there, there, someone you could name. there's a cultural breakthrough where where we're talking about Lindsey Vaughn in a non-Olympic year. We're talking about a skier in a non-Olympic year, right. and it's not the first time. So, I mean, that, to me, that's um, that's a big sign in terms of American culture. But that doesn't – that's probably not part of the measure of, of greatness. Um, well, we'll do a skiing episode sometime with right. in our French contacts to break it down. <laughs> that's right. So so here were the, uh, the three to see last week, so we're checking if they're worth the watch. Uh, Chris Gertz, you said that we should watch the Six Nations rugby match between – Ireland and Scotland. Ireland won twenty-two thirteen to win the 
Centauri Quake Trophy. Is Quake. that Quake <laughs> Trophy? Yeah. Uh, I don't even know if that's a good game. I might. I read the story of it. I think there are a lot of injuries. I mean, I, I think it was decently close. It's rugby. Of course, there are a lot of injuries. Well, even more so. Than <laughs> I mean, by comparison, though, like I was going to recommend England France a Twickenham, but England stomped on France forty-four to eight. Oof. Okay. So out of those two, I feel pretty good about my yeah. my kind of Celtic. So, so we're going to do a soft worth the watch. I'll take it. Okay. Sure. Uh, Chris Moore wanted us to watch uh, Man City at Chelsea. This was a blowout. <laughs> yeah, so Man City beat Chelsea six to nothing, including a hat trick trick from Sergio Aguero. Uh, that puts them for the time being at the top of the table. Although they've played one more game than Liverpool, who also has sixty five points. Yep. Um, I'm going to say worth the watch. Now it's a blowout, but like once you, I feel like when you you cross over when you hit four goals yeah. in soccer, and if you get six goals and a hat trick. Then it's like we got to see something that doesn't happen all right. that often. So I'm going to give that and one. We also eight. saw something where Chelsea, which who had an outside chance at the top of the table, is now definitively done. Yep. And uh, liver, I'm sorry, Man City has moved themselves into uh, right there. Yeah, and there's like 11 games left, I think, right. 11, 12 games left. So, uh, And then mine, I'm going to let you guys judge this because mine is uh, maybe a little middling. Uh, Duke, number two, Duke beat number three, Virginia, 81-71. So the game wasn't terribly close. But I was really watching it for R.J. Barrett and Zion Williamson, who combined for 44 points, 12 rebounds, 8 assists. On 14 of 23 shooting and 7 for 11 from 3. Zion also murdered a dude. <laughs> Can we talk about that? I think, like, just on the basis of the one play that we've all probably seen on YouTube, I'm yeah. going to say it's worth a while. All right. Like, blocking a three-pointer with that wingspan. Is the, my unreal. favorite is, is how it's already become a meme. And, my, and because, Sam, you mentioned Hoth, I did see a meme of Zion labeled with the word Minnesota and um, – the other player the, with the ball marked as winter, <laughs> just, <laughs> just blowing him into the, into the stands. All right. So thanks, Sam, for updating. So we're, we're going to call that three for three. With I think the so. rugby sure. one is a little soft, but we're going for it. Yeah. Thank, thank you for your mercy. <laughs> All right. Let's move on and introduce a new bit. We'll have three more to see in our last segment. But here in segment one, one game that, uh, that I think we're going to play semi-regularly, it's called... More or less. More or less. This is the alternate title for the whole podcast. We, we decided. I'm so it. glad we didn't do that. But this has been kind of a running joke. Ever so, I got here in 2003. Chris Moore, you came in 2008, and like our offices are next to each other. We are around each other a lot. And you have to do something to tell the two Chris's apart. Mm-hmm. So we have Chris the more and Chris the less over here. Which is also ironic because you're about a foot taller than me. <laughs> So what what is the conceit of more or less? What are we going to do? So here's the, here's the conceit. There's lots of things in sports. And again, we're, we're not uh, sports radio, although we would love to aspire to be. But there's lots of things that we think about polit- in a political sense, uh, evaluating this is a trend. Does this trend need to continue and accelerate or does this trend need to be curtailed? And so I'm going to give you a proposition. Okay. Every uh, sounds gambling every often. That's uh, okay. Think right, think we're, more we're Oxford sale debate proposition, okay. and then um, I'll take more, and mm-hmm. you'll take less. Unless, as your prerogative, you can call a switch on me, and then I'll have to argue the opposite well, side. I can't do that. Okay. Yep, well, so, I'll go with what you've given me. Yep. yep. So here's the proposition. Yep. Right now, um, college basketball has a one and done requirement, of, and a player who wants to enter the NBA draft has to be 19 years old and at least one year removed from their high school graduation in order to participate in the draft. Most players choose to use that time uh, to go to college, although a few players occasionally do go to European leagues and play there instead. More or less, should players be required to spend more time before entering the NBA or 
should they be able to enter the NBA right from high school? So you assigned me less. And yes. And for the sake of argument, I will stick with this and Thank say you. they should be able to go straight from high school right into their chosen profession. I mean, we'll we'll talk more about it. We're going to do a whole, like, college basketball episode where we should talk about the NCAA. But um, uh, this is all an antitrust violation. Why are mm. they restraining the trade of people who are simply trying to use their God-given abilities, hard-honed talents, to make a livelihood for themselves when they have a fixed number of years in which to earn as much money as possible, why should they be forced to provide essentially free entertainment and revenue for the NCAA? And why should the NBA be able to limit labor conditions for them? I would say, like, I mean, if you compare like what's gained by the one year of college, mm-hmm. I'm going to say the academic value of this is tenuous at best. And instead, I would say like what you should have is a true developmental league that you go straight into from high school, just like baseball players and hockey players do. You should have juniors or minors in a system mm-hmm. like that. Um, and, you know, you could write contracts like baseball does where you give money for education, and some players use that. Uh, I, I think that that's a slam dunk to me. Oh, you see, we got a pun in there. That was oh, excellent. Oh, I, yeah, just got that. <laughs> Jeez. All right, so here's the thing. I Again, this isn't necessarily our natural positions, but I'm going to argue for more. Players should actually spend more time in, uh, in college before entering the NBA. Uh, and uh, there's a couple reasons why. Uh, there's a... Uh, the NBA is getting better at scouting, but the bust rate for NBA, for players entering at a young age is still relatively high, Markel Fultz. And I think that uh, you're exactly right. One year of college does not do a good service to a player entering, uh, spending time. In fact, it's really only about a semester's worth of college because once a player gets to that second semester, eligibility is no longer a concern. They stop going to classes and they just play on the team. H- having to go for at least two years would essentially force a player to take three semesters worth of classes and that would be a durable good for those players that puts them well on the way towards getting a bachelor's degree should they ever want to come back and complete that degree and it probably helps resolve a couple of the main problems that we see in young professional athletes which is really high rates of bankruptcy mm-hmm. and, and financial mismanagement so having some of that time in college to take some real classes that would be really helpful to them as they move out into their professional careers would be beneficial now you're absolutely right the NBA the NCAA makes an enormous amount of money for relatively free mm-hmm. um, on these athletes. And I'm not saying these athletes shouldn't be paid. Uh, I just am saying that they should be have to wait longer before they enter their so NBA career. that might career. be a separate dr- debate that we should have. Absolutely. Okay. Should I, do I rebut this, or is this kind of we've made our case? Well, that's the thing. We haven't decided how long we should let this go I, for. I don't think we should let it go too long. I mean, our question is, do we let Sam resolve this, or is this an internet This poll? is a vote, I think, okay. online. So, yeah. Okay. So let just, we'll put this up online. We'll put it on... Uh, my blog, I do a, a show page for every episode, so you can go to pietoschoolman.com, or you can go to Facebook and look for Live from AC Second. Mm-hmm. You'll find this, and you can vote. So if you vote for less, you're agreeing with me that they should be able to go, basketball players should go straight from high school straight into pro sports, sports yep. right? And if you vote more, you say Player, uh Players should spend at least uh, two years removed from their graduation, or the age they're 20, until they can enter the NBA. Okay, so it's your turn. More or less on the one-and-done requirement for college basketball into the pros. Thanks, Chris. All right, we'll be right back after a break to talk to Art Remillard of St. Francis University.
This week in sports history. Chicago, Illinois, February 12th, 1876. White Stocking star pitcher Al Spaulding opens a sporting goods store with his brother Walter. Spaulding won 47 games in the first National League pennant that season, but it was the store that made his name as the Spaulding Company still manufactures equipment for many sports, including the official basketball of the NBA. Minneapolis, Minnesota, February 13, 1938. Happy birthday to Patty Berg, who grew up playing football with future University of Oklahoma coach Bud Wilkinson, but soon made golf her sport. After winning the U.S. Women's Amateur title as a student at the University of Minnesota, Berg turns pro and later helps found the LPGA, winning 60 career titles on tour. Lake Placid, New York, February 15, 1932. American Eddie Egan becomes the only Olympic athlete to win gold in both the summer and winter games, adding a bobsled title to the boxing medal he won at Amtwerp in 1920. Daytona Beach, Florida, February 18, 2001. NASCAR legend Dale Earnhardt dies in a three-car crash on the final lap of the Daytona 500 just three years after winning that race in his 20th attempt. Here's what happened up in turn three. Oof. Well, this is, this is huge because you go head on. And that TV does not do that justice. That is an incredible impact, head on. Throws you forward in the car. Uh, those are the kind of accidents that absolutely are frightening. You've been listening to This Week in Sports History. Welcome back to segment two of the 252. This week, we're very excited to welcome our first external guest. Joining us by phone from uh, snowy, icy Pennsylvania uh, is Professor Art Remlard. Art is Associate Professor of Religious Studies at St. Francis University. Um, Art writes a lot about sports, is, is, uh, in sports and religion especially. We'll get to that. Um, Art, let me also give you a chance to puff something else you do. I, I think you direct an undergraduate liberal arts conference called The Examined Life. Is that right? I do. You I do. do. And yeah. that's coming up again this spring. What What is the examined life? Yeah, that's going to be at Lebanon Valley College. Uh, we switch between us and Lebanon Valley. It's outside of Harrisburg. And what it is is it is first and foremost a celebration of the liberal arts. And I feel like we need to celebrate the liberal arts. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> to, to, to lift it up that's and great. to uh, show its, its value uh, to our lives and to the world that we live in. And so it's always a, a very exciting and, and energizing and life-affirming yearly event where we see the, the rising scholars of, of a new generation bringing new ideas into the light so that we can celebrate those ideas. It's fantastic. We've talked already that one thing Chris and I are excited about with this course is to ask some of the fundamental questions of the liberal arts through sports. So Absolutely. I think we'll circle back to that with you yes, and ask please. what it means to do sports as a scholar. But I think we always want to start with kind of autobiography. We, we did our own sports stories in a sense last week. Um, I'm going to guess that you are more of an athlete, or at least were, than any of us. But uh, we thought we'd just give you a chance to tell your own story of how have you participated in, observed sports, and maybe how did you become a scholar of sports? Yeah. So, I mean, uh, in terms of my athletic biography, I don't have much much uh, in, in terms of stuff to talk too much about in terms of ball sports and team sports I was never particularly good at those things um, I w- had the fortune of playing little league with a 
with a guy who did go on to play in the major leagues for about 10 or 11 years. <laughs> That's about as close as I got. Um, Sounds like the plot of the then, Sandlot. <laughs> yeah. And then by the time I became a uh, teenager, I got into distance running. I was about 16 years old. And some friends just said, hey, you know, you look the part. I'm about 5'5", five, five, you know, and 125 pounds, 130 pounds. So uh, they said, you look the part. Why don't you come and give this a try? And and I liked it, and I've I've done it. You know, I'm I'm 45 now. I've I've done it ever since. Uh, all so the lesson, my life. the lesson is to judge a book by its cover. Is that what I understand? <laughs> right. Okay, good. So Art, can I ask, uh, what's your preferred distance for for distance running? Oh, for, I for, love the half marathon. Okay. Um, the marathon has all of the lore, but for me personally, that's where all the injuries come in. Mm-hmm. And the half is like this perfect distance where I feel like I'm able to test endurance um, without hitting that sort of breaking point. Uh, there's there's nothing quite like getting to mile 20 and saying, oops, looks like I'm out, and then having <laughs> six more miles to trudge along. And, and I mean, that is, is, a, is, is, is tough, but then I, I always have a problem with injuries whenever I'm training for that distance. So I love the half marathon distance. Gotcha. So how do you go from uh, being a runner, and maybe you're also a fan of sports, to becoming yeah. someone who studies sports as a scholar? Yeah. So it started when I was at Florida State University, and I was in these classes on religious studies, and we're doing all this sort of theoretical work. And in order for me to just understand the basics, I had to start filtering it through something familiar to me, which was sports. I um, The one sport that I follow is college football and I was at Florida State at a time when they were very good and I'm looking down there and I'm reading you know Durkheim who talks about the collective effervescence of crowds and I'm like okay you know I see that right um, I mean I was also thinking about my own sport distance running and, and I remember reading Victor Turner talking about ritual and saying oh right I get this you know I get this idea of liminality that's what a race is. Um, and so I, I started thinking more about it and just as kind of an exercise to understand this on my own, I decided to start studying the, uh, the, the mascot at Florida State. I knew it was controversial. I didn't know why. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that, that really taught me about the power of symbols and the way in which these become these sites of, of, of contest, of sort of ideological contest, and the way in which they kind of elevate to a kind of religious level and and studying that then just sort sort of sent me down a path. I mean, I discovered that as a scholar, this is this is a topic that uh, people's ears perk up when you just mention it. So, yeah. I, you know, I study religion and sports and everybody kind of intuitively knows where you can take that. Mm. You know, it, it's either you kind of go in a Tebow direction or you go in the sort of fan mania direction. But both directions kind of, you've got people's attention right away. And I think a lot of scholars kind of, that's that's one of the things that interests us in, in getting into this topic. And, you know, you're teaching a course on it, and your students just intuitively get that link. And so that's kind of how I've gotten to where I am, I suppose. Well, we certainly hope they get that link. Let, let's head in a fan mania direction and talk about sure. a t- 2013 essay you wrote 
about Phil. Uh, sorry, Philadelphia Pittsburgh Steelers fans. <laughs> so Careful there, Chris. It's called Steelers Nation and the seriously religious side of football. We'll put a link to it on our Facebook page. Um, so you can unpack this. Maybe just unpack this sentence from uh, from that essay. Steelers Nation is not a religion comparable to Christianity, Judaism, or Islam, but Steelers Nation does act in characteristically religious ways, using sacred memories, objects, and values to inscribe deep meaning on the plays, people, and places associated with its professional football team. And you even go on to say that it has its own creation narrative, a sacred account of origins comprised of steel, elation, and a miracle. So what what does that all mean? How do you see the religious side of Steelers Nation? Sure. So to kind of start, um, when you get involved in this discussion, there's always a question that comes up, which is, is sports a religion or is sports the new religion? And this is always framed in contrast with an America where you're seeing decreasing uh, church attendance Mm -hmm. and church membership. And so I understand why we have that conversation. But that's not a conversation I'm interested in pursuing. I think that that's uh, valuable in certain settings. But for me, kind of looking across this historically, either contemporary or in the past, the interesting thing is to see how do religious themes and ideas and motifs embed themselves in the sports that we play. Mm. And so with this particular article, a friend asked me if I would write something, you know, as as, uh, sort of the football season was getting ready a couple of years ago. He said, would you write something, you know, about that? I said, sure, this is really easy. I live right outside of, of, you know, Pittsburgh, and I've been around here all of my life. I don't consider myself a Steelers fan, but I've seen it and I understand its power. And so I decided, you know what, I'll focus on this. And the reason I picked it was as I was walking through the uh, Pittsburgh airport. And I was going down the elevator, and there's these two kind of little statues right next to each other. One is of George Washington, father of our country, and directly to his left was Franco Harris. (laughs) Franco Harris picking up the football from what was known as the Immaculate Reception, you know, this, this, this famous game from 1972, which was the first playoff game that the Steelers won. If memory serves, they didn't win the Super Bowl that year, but in the 70s, they won four Super Bowls. And so this became a break in time for Pittsburgh. Mm -hmm. And so whenever they're putting Franco Harris next to George Washington and seeing like two founding fathers, no one is seeing that ironically. Everybody Mm -hmm. is seeing that as a perfectly logical juxtaposition of two important images in the memory and identity of this region. And so um, I decided to kind of use that as a sort of point of departure, a launching point to look into, you know, why is it that people care so deeply about this? And where are the places where sacred activity is alive and well? I mean, that you have something like the terrible towel. This is something that Steelers fans wave at football games, Mm -hmm. but they wrap their babies in them. Mm -hmm. They put it on top of coffins. Uh, you know, this is there for these key moments of birth and, and, and you know, thresholds in men's lives, their marriages, and then their deaths. I mean, these are, you know, fairly significant moments in a person's life course that they want to have this symbol attached to, to a, to a football team. 
So these kinds of you know mystical connections and community building things are, are, are what I wanted to get into more so than this sort of more theological question of is this the is this replacing religion and, and I, I I can't I can't bring myself to enter into that conversation because I don't know where it's going to go. But I do think it's fascinating to think about the creative ways that people inscribe sacred meaning onto the games that they play and love. So it's, it seems like you're saying that you're not interested in wading into whether sports replaces religion as a, as, a, as a sacrament, but rather that sports fans are syncretists. Uh, yeah. Well, it could be, at yeah. least. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Sure. I mean, yeah. And, and I mean, I don't think that it's a mistake that you've got a fairly distinctly Catholic category mm-hmm. being written into the memories of Steelers fans mm. uh, in what is a very Catholic region. So obviously there's, I mean, there's a lot of borrowing. I mean, think about all of the language that we use, you know, Hail Mary. You know? Immaculate we, we borrow these things because we want to say that these things are very meaningful. There's a story my friend Joe Price likes to tell of being at the AAR a few years ago, and there was a game between Notre Dame and Boston College, and it came down to, a, I think, a field goal at the end. I, I could be mixing up the details here. But he remembered being there, and there's a bunch of religion scholars, and they're watching this game, and they're all on their knees... <laughs> <laughs> praying for very different things, <laughs> and then I don't remember who won. Uh, you know, obviously one team wins, one team loses. He describes it as you know Elijah and the priest of ball. Right? <laughs> uh, religion um, scholars, fun. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And you know, his read on this is, is, you know, these are scholars of religion. These are people who are very attuned to what religion is. Are they making you know football their religion? Mm. Not really. Mm-hmm. What they're doing is, is they're expressing the importance and the significance of this moment and, mm. and, and sort of bracketing out in their own minds that these, these things really are irrelevant in the larger scheme of things. But in that moment, right. it's the only thing that matters. Right. No, earlier in the essay, you write that this is, after all, what it means to be a fan, a word derived from the Latin possessed by a deity. The spirit right. of an athletic contest is otherworldly. It controls us without our consent. Um, and I wonder, as, I mean, I can, it's interesting, you know, the Catholic connection, but I imagine you can find this in historically Protestant or very secular settings. Uh, Chris Moore, you went to The Ohio State University. I don't suppose this describes um, Buckeye Nation to any extent, does it? No, we're a bunch of rational, logical I, I people assume so. who simply observe Folk of these, the Enlightenment. dispassionately observe these athletic contests. Right. Yeah, no, I mean, uh, acts of civic ecstasy um, is the best way to describe um Big Ten football games, uh, people, um, this, the sacramentally way of gathering, the, the, the traditions, the pageantry, the figures, mm-hmm. and uh, like Art was saying too, even the, the physical artifacts mm-hmm. that accompany those games. Um, these are, these are large-scale masses uh, for the masses. Now, at the same time, Art, maybe now we can bring things full circle and come back to running because we talked about uh, this very communal, collective kind of religiosity, but... I mean, there's also a sense in which a very solitary activity like long-distance running um, can also be religious. So in, in the Steelers Nation essay, you allude to another essay by, I think his name is George Sheehan, who's yeah. a running world columnist, in which he he says people often ask him if running is itself a religion, and he toys with that, and then he comes to the conclusion it's not a religion, but it's a place. And he had been reading Henry Nowen and decided it's a little bit like going to a monastery. 
right. for a retreat. I mean, is that uh, I mean, I can personalize this for you, or maybe this is something you study as a scholar. Do, do you get what he's talking about? Is, is running in a different way a kind of religious behavior, or at least a retreat to a kind of religious-like setting, like a monastery? Yeah, I, I absolutely identify that both as a, as a you know as a runner and a scholar. I think that it, that uh, that is one of those early essays that I read where the lights came on, and she has a great way with framing things and, and pulling ideas together. Um, I think about you know to get back to an earlier point, you know Victor Turner's idea of the the rituals you go through this separation, the liminal phase, and then the reentry, and the way in which we have an opportunity in ritual to separate ourselves from our status quo, to experience something in, in a kind of um, otherworldly way, and then come back to our status quo a little bit different. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, you know, it's, it's only in a race or it's only in running that certain behaviors and activities and clothing make sense. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, you know, I remember living in Florida while I was writing about Victor Turner, and, and of course, everybody runs in as little clothes as possible, and it only makes sense in that setting. <laughs> you know, to have that, to to be to be just wearing my running shorts and no shirt, and you know my running shoes. Um, every that's perfectly normal. Um, to be sweating profusely to all of your orifices, you know, going in different <laughs> directions. Uh, if these are these are the things uh, that we conceal in our daily life. I mean, they're part of what's being what it is be, to be human. But we take all sorts of extraordinary steps to keep what's on the inside of us inside. You know, mm-hmm. we have deodorant and we have clothing and we have all these other things. But in running, all all of the rules for that are just are, are reversed. And and mm-hmm. I mean, I think Sheehan says like something to the effect of this is where life is lived. Um, this is where we have these constant and returning life-affirming experiences where, uh, you know, the rules are different, our communities are, are bound together by a common activity and a common experience, and we get to share a life in solidarity with each other that is just uniquely powerful. And so I think these are, these are things that absolutely speak to me, right, as a, as a you know, as a, as a runner, as a scholar, both. So or maybe one last question, let you uh, uh, kind of promote your own work a little bit. I know you're working on a religious history of sports in America. I don't know if you have a kind of timeline for when that's going to come out, or maybe you could just tell us, like, what's uh, what's a chapter or a section you've enjoyed working on in the book? I've, I've enjoyed it all. Um, so that's, it's, um, I think I'm tentatively calling it uh, Bodies in Motion, Religious hmm. History of Sports in America. And it started when I, I wrote a, a just an encyclopedia entry. And I kind of got this idea that, that we, that it's, it's the moment of, of, um, interpretation. This is where sports can move into the sacred, where people are doing things, but then we interpret them. And how we interpret them, I think, has a lot to say about how we, uh, turn ordinary things into sacred things. Um, and so it's been a really interesting thing because I've been able to go and do a little bit deeper dive. Um, presently, I'm, and, and, you know, the sort of the content of this certainly does reflect my own interests. And I'm finding that in the late 19th, early 20th century, one of the really um, uh, popular spectator sports, believe it or not, was what they called pedestrianism, which was yes. just foot mm-hmm. races. Speedwalking. Right? Um, and, and so I'm finding all sorts of wonderfully 
uh, kind of curious things that I think we've we've left in our memory. One I'll just sort of throw out there was was a uh, Seneca Indian by the name of um, um, Lewis Bennett. He went by Deerfoot, and you know one of the stories we tell is like kind of a lot of things stopped in the Civil War years, obviously for mm-hmm. obvious reasons, and sports is one of them. And you know once we kind of come out of the the, the Civil War, that's when we start to look back and say, okay, this is when muscular Christianity really took hold. You know, it was a thing before the Civil War. It was a thing in England, but after the Civil War is when it took up. But I'm looking at this story of, of uh, Deerfoot, which was his, you know, kind of the, the, the name he used in racing. And he was gaining fame over in England as a pedestrian. Um, at the time of the Civil War. And so this mm. is, and, and there's there's all kinds of interesting sort of um, religious imagery used in, in talking about him, about how they uh, sort of made a character for him over in England and how his story then made it back to the United States and how they talked about him over there. And so, you know, it's just, it's one really sort of interesting addition that I'm finding to this story that is surprising to me that I look forward to sharing with more people. Well, well, well Art, you've been great. Thanks for um, kicking off our series here, helping us to understand a few different dimensions of sports than what we might normally think about. And um, when the book comes out, maybe we'll have you back on. You can uh, join us on your speaking tour. As you, uh, well, that as sounds you great. Out. Thank you for having me. Okay. I appreciate talking with you. Thanks, Thanks Art. Art. We'll be right back. Get in touch with the 252 by emailing us at livefromac2nd at gmail.com. Alright gang, we're running short in time. Let's go straight to three to see. Sam, kick us off. Alright, I am going to stick with basketball. This is three in a row that are basketball for me. So Friday, February 15th at 6pm Pacific Time in Eugene, Oregon. It's kind of late. Well, you know. <laughs> your kids will be in bed by then. That's you true. can settle in for a game here. I don't have cable. <clears throat> That's right. Number, th- number three, Oregon. Uh, mm-hmm. host number seven, Oregon State, in women's college basketball. Now, that's a good matchup just in terms of rankings, but the reason I picked this is because junior Oregon guard Sabrina Ionescu good name. Yes, uh, is the women's Division I career leader in triple-doubles with 15. <clears throat> Ionescu, who is currently averaging 19.3 points, 7.3 rebounds, and leading the nation with 18.2 assists per game. 18.2? Wow. Excuse me, 8.2. Oh, still important. Still That's good. That's right. <laughs> yes, uh, is, the, is a future star in the WNBA and is contemplated in jumping to the league after her junior year. So does the WNBA also have this age minimum requirement? Do we know? <laughs> I'm not sure that it's been challenged okay. or, or, yeah. Yeah, I, I didn't think so. Yeah. Okay. There have been a few players who've left after the junior year right. to go Brittany in. Brittany so Griner did, didn't she? I believe maybe. I'm not 100% yeah. sure. Okay. Chris Moore. Yes, uh, the 2019 NASCAR season begins... Uh, with the tw- with the 61st running of the Daytona 500, Brad Keselowski is the favorite at eight to one. However, please pay attention to Joey Logano, who's a uh, favorite at nine to one. Logano is the defending champion of the NASCAR NASCAR Cup Series and also has one of my favorite nicknames in all of professional sports, 
sliced bread. <laughs> Not just professional sport. Like, if you ever nicknames, if you yeah. can get people to call, call you, you sliced, sliced bread, bread, good for you. Yeah. Does that ever get shortened or is it always sliced bread? I've only ever known to be fully sliced shorten? bread. I don't know, but like, that's a long nickname bread? to say to somebody. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Uh, Britain's FA Cup enters its fifth round this weekend. Forget about Chelsea Manu at Stamford Bridge. The real highlight on Saturday, second-tier Millwall playing at third-tier AFC Wimbledon <laughs> after both defeated premiership opponents in round four. Millwall took down Everton in injury time while Wimbledon doubled up our friends at West Ham United. Four to two at Wimbledon. It wasn't even close. Like it was four to like one, and they stormed back and started. It was. I can only imagine what the West Ham fans were doing at that time because they were upset at their team Winning. when they were up <laughs> one to nothing. They were <laughs> angry at their team. So watch that. All right, guys. So uh, listeners, you can get in touch with us. Email us at livefromacsecond at gmail.com if you have thoughts about our interview, other things we've talked about. And please remember to vote on more or less. Again, you can go to pietaschoolman.com, look for our show page, or go to our Facebook page live from AC Second and vote in our poll. Chris, take us away. Keep those engines hot and go Royals.